All right, well, let's turn to another real story in the Bible, Genesis chapter 31. Now, let me encourage you to uh, keep your Bible open on your lap. I'll, I'll refer to it. It's, uh, it's 55 verses, so I'm not going to read it all right now. That's long. Well, that would not be wrong, but I just have chosen this morning not to read it all. So I will uh, provide a summary of it as we move through uh, this text this morning. Um, but before we do that, before we get started, I want to pray. And I invite you to pray with me. We need the Lord's help. So let's pray. Father in heaven, this book, your words, and as you have said, they are living, they are active, and they are so, so very effective, more so than a, a double-edged sword. In the very nature of your word that it pierces to the very core of our beings. And God, we, we want that. We know that when your word does that, we're left open and bare before you. Your word will correct. It will rebuke. It will exhort. It will encourage. It will train us to do everything that you want us to do, every good thing. And so, Father, we pray for that to happen this morning. We pray that you would give us that expectant attitude towards your truth, such that we receive the food of your word and that it accomplishes in us that which you desire. So, Father, be with hearer and proclaimer alike. Cause us to hear your voice for our eternal good and your ultimate glory. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Lots of people like to use the back of their cars to communicate things that they think are important for the rest of the world to see, or at least the driver that is immediately behind them, where their kids go to school or if they're honor, on the honor roll or what team they think is important, sometimes people like to put slogans on the back of their cars, just pithy statements about what they think is really important. I saw, I saw uh, um, some time ago uh, messages that, that would uh, show what people think is important, right? So one example that I, that I saw is that he who has the most toys wins, which is, seems like a terribly shallow thing to communicate to the world. Some people like to say the directions that they're going. Um, some people like to say the things that are, are, are of importance to them. But when it comes to traveling, uh, there are two ways to travel. And as we follow those in front of us, we see where they're going. But there are two ways to travel. Uh, you can wander or you can take a journey. And, and wandering is very much different than taking a journey. Wandering, I would suggest, is aimless, reactive, and it has no, no objective in mind. It can certainly be enjoyable, but, but it can also be dangerous, right? Because you're never quite sure where you will end up. Somebody who wanders, maybe the theme song of their life is Wasting Away in Margaritaville. A journey, on the other hand, is, 
There's an objective, isn't there? And somebody who is traveling in front of you, you can see if they have an objective because they put their turn signal on and they turn this way and that way. The one who wanders, you know, is weaving across the line and doesn't know where he's going. He may be looking around. A journey, like I said, has an objective. And while there is a destination in view, I would not say that a journey is not without the potential of danger, but those dangers and risks can be considered and sometimes mitigated. Now, you've probably heard this, that, that life, that some people have said that life is a journey. Sounds like a bumper sticker statement. I would offer that for Christians, it should be. Life should be a journey. And the destination of life is not necessarily a particular, particular geographical place, per se, but that, uh, that destination is certainly a person. That destination is eternal and joyful satisfaction and fellowship with God. Now, as we turn our attention to the Bible story uh, before us in Genesis chapter 31, I'm going to summarize that in a moment. But what we're going to consider this morning is the journey that Jacob takes from Paddan Aram to the land of Canaan. Now, that's a journey that the Lord had directed him to take. It was a journey to the fulfillment of a promise that the Lord had made to Jacob's father, Isaac, and to his grandfather, Abraham. Now, for the Israelites, who is the first audience of this collection of stories in the first five books of the Bible, for the first audience, they were the Israelites. Hearing this story, they would hear that there were parallels to their own experience, and those to them should have been instructive. But I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, the parallels do not stop with the Israelites. The story, as all of the stories in Genesis, they have been instructive for us, and this one is no different. Christians who are on a journey, this is instructive for us as Christians who are on a journey to fully enjoy the eternal promises of God that have been secured for us in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you an overarching picture of the Bible text before us and how that grand narrative instructs the generations that follow. Just a summary statement here about what we're looking at in Genesis 31. Because he trusted in the Lord's promise, Jacob embarked on a journey from Haran to Canaan. In verse 3 of the text, as you're looking at your Bibles, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now, as we fast forward to the Israelite experience, because Israel believed in God's promise, they embarked on a journey from slavery in Egypt to freedom in Canaan. And here's where we make the application leap to our own lives. See, if you have trusted in the promise of God, that promise of eternal life in Christ, you are likewise on a journey to a place of eternal joy and fellowship with the Lord. So there's the big picture. This is the journey. We have a destination in mind. Now let me summarize the story, and I'm going to give some explanation along the way. Uh, verses 1 through 3, uh, Jacob had been dwelling with Laban 20 years. Now Laban's sons had accused Jacob of stealing from Laban. Laban's attitude towards Jacob had changed. 
So Jacob was dwelling with Laban, tending his flocks, but he had become, um, he'd become increasingly wealthy. In the last section, we saw that, that Jacob, in a desire to leave and return to Canaan, this is six years prior, he had made an arrangement with Laban for how he was going to provide for his own family. And it was involved the breeding of the sheep and ending up in the goats and taking what were the rarer versions of those and uh, the rarer outcome of those, and those would be his wages effectively. Laban's uh, sons now accuse Jacob of stealing. Um, they think that he has been uh, deceitful in his practices. So Laban's attitude has changed. The Lord here tells Jacob to go back to Canaan. Verse uh, 4 through 16, that section. Jacob then calls Leah and Rachel, these are his wives, and he wants to explain the situation to them. He tells Leah and Rachel that their father has become hostile toward him. He tells them that Laban had cheated him and changed his wages ten times. He tells them that the Lord had revealed to Jacob in a dream that the goats would mate and the sheep would mate and they would produce, the, the goats would produce striped, spotted, and mottled coats, very much confirming why he told Laban that those would be his wages, these characteristics. Rachel and Leah agree with Jacob that their father has treated them as foreigners to be sold for profit. And they trust what Jacob says and they agree to leave. Verses 17 through 21. Jacob leaves Haran for Canaan with all of his family, all of his possessions, and he does this under, uh, in a kind of a, a coy way while Laban is away shearing sheep. He packs up everything and leaves. During this leaving, and unbeknownst to Jacob, we discover in verse 32 of our text, Rachel steals Laban's household gods as they leave. Verses 22 to 32. Now Laban hears that Jacob has fled, and he goes to pursue him. And just before Laban finds Jacob, God comes to Laban in a dream, and he warns him. This is verse 24. He tells Laban, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now when Laban finds Jacob, he accuses Jacob of trickery in his leaving. And he feigns this kind of disappointment that he could not send them off with a, a celebratory farewell. But at the same time, he also acknowledges that God told him that he should not harm Jacob, though he makes a point of telling Jacob that he did have it within his power to do so. And at this point, Laban then accuses Jacob of stealing his household gods. Now, Jacob certainly admits that he departed secretly, that he did that out of fear, but he denies taking the gods as he is still unaware that Rachel has them. And so what Jacob does in response to Laban, Jacob says to Laban, look anywhere you want through all my stuff effectively. And he pledges to Laban that if he should find any of, of Laban's possessions in his, uh, among his property, that that individual should die. Basically pronouncing the death penalty on anybody who's violated that. Now, verses 33 through 35, Laban then conducts this search of Jacob's tent. He conducts a search of, of uh, Leah's tent and their maidservants, uh, 
Bilha and Zilpah, searches Rachel's tent, but uh, Rachel in her tent is sitting on a, a camel's uh, saddle within which she has hidden these household gods. And so Laban in that situation is prevented there from searching Rachel's tent completely as Rachel claims that euphemistically she is uh, the way of women is upon me is, is the words that she uses. So in, in the end, uh, Laban's search turns up nothing. Now, we see as we move to verses 36 through 42, seeing this, this, the way that this has turned out, Jacob now turns and re- berates Laban, effectively rebukes him. He rebukes him for the ill treatment that he has received from him over the years. And he tells him there in that situation that he'd been working for him for 20 years. He caused him to prosper. Jacob had, through that time, taken personal responsibility for any of Laban's losses, whether that was by theft or through through nature. He tells Laban, you've changed my wages 10 times, effectively saying to Laban, you've been deceitful with me. He reminded Laban that although he tried to treat Uh, cheat Jacob that God had prospered him anyway. Verse 42, Jacob says to Laban, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Getting to the end here of this text. Verses 43 through 55. Now in response, Laban claims that, that everything that Jacob has is his, but paints himself as this magnanimous giver. He says, but what can I do this day for these, my daughters, or for their children, whom I I have borne? Sorry, whom they have borne. And at this point, Laban offers to make a covenant as if, and I think this is the tone of this, as if by his own generosity, he is going to release them. Then what happens is Jacob sets up a stone. He has other stones gathered around it, making a heap, effectively a pillar. And they feast in that moment, effectively marking the moment. Verse 48, Laban said to Jacob, this heap, again, it's a stone surrounded by other stones. This heap, this monument is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one sees us, see God is witness between you and me. And they also agree that this this heap of stones will effectively be a boundary marker that would separate the two families going forward. Laban uh, Laban gives it the name Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob calls it Galid. And this is where the story ends. Early the next morning, Laban gets up, farewell to his grandchildren and his daughters, blesses them, and the two are never together again. There's a summary of what we're looking at. So how are we to to think about this? How are we to, to gain some meaning from all of this? Well, for the Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt, hearing this story, it would have, they would have seen some very clear parallels to their own experience. Again, because 
Because he, that is Jacob, because he trusted the Lord's promise, he embarked on a journey from Haran to Canaan. Again, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now to the parallel for the Israelites later on. Because Israel believed God's promise, they embarked on a journey from Egypt to Canaan. As the Lord told Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. And as we seek to make application for our own lives today, if you have trusted in God's promise of eternal life, you are likewise on a journey to a place of eternal joy and rest. As Jesus said, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So my premise here is that as believers in Jesus this morning, we are on a journey, a journey to enjoy the eternal rest that God has promised to us in Christ, his son. So from our text, there are, there are some things that we should understand about the journey. This is how we'll make application. And um, not surprisingly, I have three. So here we go. Here are three things that we should understand about the journey. The first one, endure hardship. Second, trust in God's provision. And third, know your boundaries. Let me review those again. Endure hardship, trust in God's provision, and know your boundaries. First, endure hardship. Again, on the theme of bumper stickers, I saw another one said this, life is hard, then you die. Now, if you tell that to a 20-something, I think that they get, they would think that that's kind of morose, right? Uh, but someone who's lived for, for five or six decades is more likely to agree with the sentiment. Now, of course, we know life isn't only hardship, but we also know, we also know that there is no such thing as a life that is an entirely devoid of hardship. And if we take the example of Jacob to heart in this story, if we take that example to heart as people of God, I think that there should be an even greater expectation of hardship because obedience to God's call and promise ultimately puts you at odds with the world around you. Right? Your Swimming upstream. Everybody's going in this direction, but you're, you're moving against the current. Now, looking at Jacob's life, he had worked for Laban for 14 years. He did that for Rachel and Leah. Initially, in his mind, he would work seven years to get Rachel. And that the text tells us a few chapters ago, that seemed like but a day. Just like a few days. Seven years just went by like that. Of course, Laban deceived him, gave him Rachel, he worked for another seven years, sorry, gave him Leah. He worked for another seven years for, uh, for Rachel. And another six years after that, working out the agreement that he made for Laban for his own wages so that ultimately he could return to Canaan. So it's been 20 years. But in that time, Laban's heart turned against Jacob. Verse 2, again, 
Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And as we reviewed the text, Jacob called his wives to meet him out in the field where he explained the situation. He said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Now here, Jacob then explains to his wives what Laban has done. He tells them, your father has cheated me and changed my wages seven times, or sorry, ten times. And his wives agree. In fact, they feel their own sense of injustice, this hardship from Laban. They say back to Jacob, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. When Laban ultimately chased Jacob down, he admitted he admitted his own attitude towards him. Laban said, it is my, in my power to do you harm. Now, this whole episode in Haran, it began when Isaac, his father, sent Jacob, go find a wife. And it began as an experience that was joyful to him as he found his relatives and, and discovered this beautiful Rachel, who he offered seven years of work because Jacob came with nothing. And it seemed he received that joyful welcome from Laban. But the story has progressively soured. Now, Jacob in this time has multiplied greatly. He has a huge family. He has great wealth. But again, it's been a season of hardship. Now, again, for the Israelites, this story had a very familiar ring to it. At the end of Genesis, we find Jacob's family has settled in Egypt. They are there. Jacob's extended family, his children and his grandchildren, they are there enjoying the hospitality of Pharaoh in the midst of a famine on account of Jacob, on account, sorry, of Joseph, his son, who found favor with Pharaoh for managing Egypt's affairs during the famine. And now the Israelite tribes are enjoying great favor and prosperity and, and comfort in the land of Egypt in the midst of famine. But 400 years later, Things soured. And we're told in Exodus 1.8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So the Israelites had experienced, as they're thinking about Jacob's story in Haran, where it all began so great, the Israelites are saying, yeah, it was all so great at the beginning. But over time, Pharaoh oppressed the Israelites. He forced them into slavery. He killed their male babies to control their population. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, what was true for Jacob and what, is, what was true for the Israelites is also true for Christians today. And, and Jim, if you were in the adult Sunday school class, he, he shared about suffering. There is hardship in the world. And there is hardship because there is sin in the world. Sin brings suffering of all kinds. And, and to be sure, that, that hardship falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But there is a unique hardship that Jesus warned his followers about when he said this. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation. That's John 16, 33, the first part. And when Jesus talks about the world, that's the earth, this globe. But you know, the world in the Bible also has, it's kind of like biblical shorthand for uh, sinful human civilization that is ultimately opposed to God, the world. And that system is, is driven by corrupted motivations and appetites, the world, 
John the Apostle writes in his letter about the world, for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So as believers in Jesus, we may suffer hardship when we resist the world's pull to lust, to greed, and to pride in all of its expressions. But Jesus said this to encourage his disciples, and by extension, he encourages us. Second part of John 16, 33, he said, But take heart, I have overcome the world. When we come, come to this fact of Jesus overcoming the world, it gives us a different perspective. Because you know the destination, you can see how Jesus overcame the world. You know the destination. This is what, what Peter says, again, we talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Or maybe it was last week. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's talking to Christians who are experiencing persecution in the world for their faith. He's saying, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, well, this is, this is the journey, right? There is suffering for righteousness' sake. There is suffering for identifying with Christ and not standing with the world. There is suffering. And he says to him, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your minds, in your hearts, set Christ the Lord as holy. Understand who he is. And with that knowledge, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you why you have hope for the journey. Right? There is a hope in you. And while your journey, while you're on this journey, be prepared to speak of that hope. But do it in a way that is gentle and respectful. So let me ask you this morning. On this journey, are you prepared to endure hardship. Let me suggest to you, you can only do that if you know the destination. Second, trust in God's provision. Well-being in this nation, at least from its founding, I think has been defined as, as stated in the Declaration of Independence, right? You all know this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think over time, that ideal has proven to be well-suited for human flourishing. And we think about that. The, the, the things that people seek with that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that pursuit of happiness, the things that people seek, which I would say that pursuit of happiness means thriving, right? What people seek is are resources, right, to provide for your family. What people seek is justice to right the wrongs, and ultimately, people seek protection from elements and enemies alike. That's an environment that, that's good for human thriving. As people who acknowledge that God knows, that God sees, that God rules over all, we as his people are to look to him for that provision. Trust in God's provision. Now, in our Bible story, we can see how the Lord had provided 
these for Jacob. God's provision ensured. God's provision ensured that he would prosper. God's provision ensured that he would be protected. And here's a word that you probably thought that wouldn't belong, but God's provision ensured that he would plunder. I'll explain that in a moment. Three Ps, nice alliteration. Prosper, protect, and plunder. Well, let's talk about prosperity. Even though Laban had made life difficult for Jacob, right? Even though that happened, he entered into an agreement with Jacob for his wages. The striped, the spotted, the mottled, that was Jacob's wages. And again, they were the rarer ones. Unlikely in normal breeding. And yet, the Lord ensured that Jacob would prosper despite Laban's cheating ten times. And this is why Jacob prospered. Because the Lord told him he would. This is what he tells his wives. He tells them of a dream that he had. The angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. <laughs> see, see, the angel of the Lord speaking God's message to him gave him this assurance. You're going to prosper. I know what Laban's doing. Your sheep and your goats, they're going to look like this, and I'm going to make it happen. Jacob prospered because the Lord provided. Well, secondly, part of God's provision was, was that he was protected. Again, in hot pursuit, Laban certainly determined to harm Jacob, but, but God intervened, didn't he? Laban admits this. God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now again, here we see the parallel with with the Israelites who left Egypt. Pharaoh changed his mind after he released them, after the, the, the Passover and the death of the firstborn. He released the Israelites, says, go, leave. Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued the Israelites to the boundary of the Red Sea. And then feeling hemmed in, the Israelites thought there that they would perish. But what did the Lord do? The Lord protected them. And he provided this theophany. And if you've read through Exodus, you'll know of the story of the, how, how the, the pillar of cloud and by day and the pillar of fire by night, how that did not depart from before the people, Exodus 13. That pillar of cloud and fire stood between the Israelites and the Egyptians until the Israelites had crossed over the Red Sea on dry land, a miracle in itself. And when that pillar moved away, Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian army pursued the Israelites into that dry seedbed seabed, only to be drowned by the returning waters. God showed his mighty hand and protected his people. The other thing, other aspect of God's provision is plunder. And this word may be surprising to you. What's plunder? Plunder are the, the spoils of war. That is wealth gained by conquest. Now here's an odd little story in our text. Leah and Rachel understood that Laban's mistreatment of Jacob fell to them as well, right? And they were offended. They were offended by the way that they were married off. Sold, they said. And whatever bride price was due them, whatever benefit due them through Jacob's faithful work, all of that, they said, was squandered, leaving them effectively with nothing of an inheritance from their father. 
Verses 15 and 16, for he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. That's their expression. This, they experienced in their minds a grave injustice from Laban. And I take it that that is what motivated what Rachel did. I mentioned this earlier in the text. Verse 19 of our text says this, Laban had gone to shear his sheep. Now remember, Jacob and Leah, and Rachel, and the whole company of them, they're about to leave. Laban's off shearing his sheep, and the text tells us in verse 19, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now you might think, what is the significance of this little, little expression, this story? What, why is it here? Well, of course, the significance of these gods was not only the fact that they were idolatrous worship, making a distinction between Laban and his worship and Jacob's, yet why did Rachel take them? Some scholars suggest that the one who held these, these gods, was also the legal heir of the estate. And that's probably Laban's prime motivation in pursuing them hard, right? But I would take it that Rachel feels justified in taking them, considering Laban's deceitful and unjust treatment of them. Now, not, uh, not justifying Rachel's deceit and theft, but this fact, this act of what she did, I believe it foreshadowed how upon leaving Egypt in haste, again, after the Passover, they left in haste, the Israelites were enriched. Maybe you know the story. After the killing of the firstborn, again, Pharaoh said, go, leave. This is what it says in Exodus 12. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. They plundered the Egyptians. They took their wealth. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know you can trust in God's provision for this journey. We're on our way to receive the full inheritance in Christ, the place that Jesus has prepared for us in his father's house. He will supply everything that we need when you keep your focus on him. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. Oft quoted, maybe some of you have memorized it. Jesus said this. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? These are things that, these are needs. What do we eat? What do we need to drink? What, what do we wear? And Jesus said, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them all. And Jesus said this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. God will provide. Trust his provision. And, and, and likewise, know that if you are in Christ today, know that God will protect your soul. Jesus said in the Great Commission, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. He's not leaving you. And to assure his disciples on the very nature of his salvation, 
that it was up to God. And the security of that salvation is determined by God alone, not by, not by people. Jesus said this, teaching in the wilderness in John chapter 6. He said, all that the Father gives me, he is referring to people who he determines to save, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So know this. If you're in Christ today, your soul is protected for eternity. You can never, ever be lost. You will never be cast out. And, and I get it. I get the way this is, right? We look around in the world and we see things that are really very, very wrong. The injustices that we see, the horrible things happening. And maybe you experience some of that. But I would say this, the greatest injustice is not, the greatest injustice in the world is not the horrific things that humans do to one another, as horrific as they are, whether that's theft, murder, abuse, enslavement, perversions of all kinds, and as horrible as these things are, I would say the greatest injustice is that man sets up kingdoms to his own glory, denying the very God who created everything and supplies everything. The Bible tells us that one day God will plunder the world, and put everything under the authority of his son. Now, hear me on this. We don't plunder the world, but God will plunder the world for the sake of his son and for the sake of all who are found in him. That's what the psalmist says. Psalm 2, 7 and 8. The Lord says, this is a messianic psalm. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And what belongs to Christ, the nations, the ends of the earth, he will share with his people. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. And one day that will be recognized. The plunder will have been accomplished. When Christ returns, there will be this glorious declaration. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So every kingdom in the world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will plunder the world. The spoils of war belong to Jesus and he shall reign forever. So as we're on the journey, trust Trust in God's provision. He will give you everything you need for the journey. He will protect your soul. And there's coming a day when everything will be returned to his rule. And we will share that with him. Well, finally, finally, know your boundaries. Know your boundaries. In most nations in the world, borders are respected might be argued that in this nation that doesn't seem to be the case these days, but we're not talking about that. We get what's going on in Ukraine, right? They're at war with, with Russia. And what are they defending? They're defending their borders. That border is that boundary line. It, it serves to make a distinction, not only but between two nations, but there are certain ideals within that nation, right? Shared values, shared goals. And when that border is violated... There's the possibility of corrupting the shared values, the things that make that people a distinct identity. Well, in preparation for his own journey, Jacob, he made a distinction 
between his own flocks and servants and camels and those of Laban. And he embarked on this journey to go to the place that the Lord promised so that he could live out the ideals and goals and values that God's promises provide. There was a spiritual boundary between him and Laban. And in leaving, Jacob sought to establish a physical boundary, a land of Canaan. Now, when Laban realized, again, he's faking his way through this, pretending to be the giver, but when, when, when Laban realized that Jacob's family was no longer part of his family, and indeed that the Lord had made that distinction between them, he said this, verse 44. He said, come now, let us make a covenant. You and I, I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. It was a moral boundary. Laban recognized it. He said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. Laban recognized it was a moral boundary. But the physical border that was established by that pillar, that would serve to ensure peace between Jacob and Laban. And later, that border would, would be a physical boundary marking the eastern border of the land that the Israelites would possess. And just, just so we get context for the later part of, of the Pentateuch, in the assignment of the land to the different tribes, Gilead, also known Transjordan, that was ultimately given to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Simple, simple statement of, of what happened. A boundary was set up. Now, as, as Christians, we seek to apply this. We've got to know our boundaries. Because the Lord has set us apart, there is a distinction between us and the world. Now, that's no cause for a sense of superiority on our part, because this distinction is the fact that we know the grace of God in Christ. And you are part of this distinct group. If you have come to understand that because of your sin, you stand condemned before a holy God. And because you understand that in your desperation, you fixed your eyes on Jesus, the Son of God, and you have seen and understood that his death on the cross was the full payment for your sin. You understand that by trusting in Christ, the eternal consequence of your sin that deserved commendation, condemnation, the eternal consequence of your sin ultimately fell to Jesus, the Son of God. And in his dying and rising again, you are then welcomed into the family of God. And you have joined in this journey where you are Marching to Eden, to the promised land. You get that. Because Christ suffered for our sins in his death, it requires that we leave our sin behind. We have to renounce evil. And we have to be careful to live in submission to God's word. That means keeping a moral boundary. 
Know your boundary. On the journey, know your boundary. Know you are distinct from the world. This is what James says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you align yourself with the world, you're on the wrong side of the boundary. And you show yourself to belong to the world and not to Christ. Again, this is not an attitude of moral superiority, but what we are standing on this side of the boundary, what we are is a witness to the grace of God. So as we seek to do what is right and live at peace with those who have no regard for God's law, we have to trust that God will judge at the appropriate time for all of the injustices done to us. We're going to suffer in the world. Injustices will be done. That's God's deal. And this is what Paul says to the Romans. And we have to take this to heart as believers today as we understand what side of the boundary marker we're standing on. Paul says this, Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is Romans 12, 17 through 19. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. God's going to set it right. But know which side of the boundary you are on. That boundary is so important. Again, it's not an occasion for arrogance. It's an opportunity for us to, to help each other on the journey. You see, we, we gather like this to remind ourselves of the boundary. We're not here out of moral superiority. We're here out of a collective understanding of the immensity of God's grace in our lives and the mercy that he's poured out to us. That's why we're here, not moral superiority. But we're here to encourage each other to not be friends with the world, to remind each other of what Christ has accomplished, to remind each other of the destination that we're headed towards, to keep our focus on Christ who has set us apart, to equip us to live out our lives in the world, ultimately as ambassadors to the grace of God in Christ. We, we gather like this as we encourage one another on this journey to our eternal reward in Christ. Now, I don't think it would be a surprise that some, a few perhaps in this room or some listening, are wandering this morning, not on the journey. You're wasting away in Margaritaville. Maybe the best thing that you can do is look for that lost shaker of salt. Don't play that song after Paul. Do you get what I'm saying? The pointlessness and people in the world are wandering. Their pursuits are indulging the flesh. But we're on a journey, a journey to the promised land. And we've got to expect some things on the journey because we're not there yet. While we have the promise of this inheritance in Christ, we do not fully possess it. And we have to make our way from Haran to Canaan, from this world to fully enjoy the kingdom of God. So on that journey, we must be prepared, swimming against the current, be prepared to endure, endure hardship. But along the way, we can have confidence in God's provision. He will 
provide. He will protect. And we can be sure that one day he will plunder the world to give everything back to the Lord Jesus. And while we're making this journey, we need to be reminded of the boundaries. The physical and moral boundaries that set us apart as the people of God. So, are you on the journey? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you speak. We thank you that our destination is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and while we have possession of eternal life, even now, as your word says, our names have been written in the book. Lord, we ask that you would give us endurance to face the hardships. Father, that you'd strengthen our faith that every good thing that you want us to have, you will give, you will not deny it. And you will protect our souls. We will not be eternally lost even if we lose our very lives. And Father, as we make this journey, I pray as your people that we will know the boundary, know who we are, what we are, and what we are not. That as we continue to take this journey, Father, that we will show ourselves aligned by our behavior, by our words, by the priorities in our lives, that we, show, that we will show ourselves to be aligned with the Lord Jesus Christ. So strengthen us to that end by your spirit and your word. For the glory of Jesus.